Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for this 443rd show is Dr. Christy Navin Warren, professor and VO and Elizabeth Call Figge Chair of Catholic Studies in the Departments of Religious Studies and Gender and Women's and Sexuality Studies at the University of Iowa. And we're going to be talking about her book, Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. And Ed, start us off. Thanks, Jay. Christy, a couple of decades ago, and back a little farther, one of the meatpacking industry's tactics was to hire, at that time, one-fourth whites, one-fourth blacks, one-fourth Asians, and one-fourth Hispanics. Now, that was trotted out as an equal opportunity PR stunt, but in fact, they knew with that ethnic diversity, the racial diversity, and the mix of languages, that they were never going to have to face a united workforce. Is that still out there? Yeah, I mean, that's such a good question. I mean, I think the approach I take in the book is that certainly not to deny that as a divisive tactic. But, I mean, one of the things I really want to point out in the book is that these are the most diverse workplaces that I've ever encountered, and they definitely push back against the trope against of the white Midwest. But I think you're absolutely right. I think that tactic of dividing up um, workers and oftentimes having workers of one language on the line at the same time, I think you're absolutely right. That can really under, that could work to undermine, to stop, to halt before it starts, solidarity across ethnic and linguistic lines. Absolutely. So I think, again, it's, it's, um, it's such a complex story, right? Yes, this is an incredibly diverse place where you hear many languages. I think there's like t- over 20 languages spoken at the Columbus Junction plant. But also, yes, they're diverse, and they're doing the work of DEI, which universities like to say, you know, we're doing diversity, equity, inclusion, but not really, right? I mean, we're doing so these are incredibly diverse places, but also um, when you have multiple languages and you have folks who are unable to really talk and they stick with their own groups during breaks, then how are you going to effectively unionize? I think that there are there is I, I mentioned earlier in the um, the tape radio show. I I think that um, we are going to see more. Ha- I th- I'm I'm seeing some stirrings of what can hopefully become effective unionization, where I think organizers are working with workers now to help cut through those linguistic barriers. But that is definitely going to take time because you're right. There are multiple languages spoken, and you know even dialects. I mean, there's like. There are like 25 different Burmese dialects. I mean, Hakka Chin is the, the most dominant one in Columbus Junction, but I think your your point there is, is very well taken, and I think it has been a tactic, and I think it does continue to be a tactic uh, used by these rural places uh, to discourage um, banding together among people. Okay. Rick. Christy, uh, your book came out a couple of months ago, I believe, and uh, as a result, were you able to take a look at the impact on uh, the uniting and dividing of, of the uh, uh, meatpacking uh, uh, employees based on the COVID experience? Because they, they were 
uh, I think they were either number one or two behind uh, the uh, nursing home facilities as far as infections and death. And I just wondered what the impact was on, on their esprit de corps, if you will. Yeah, no, that is such a great question. And one thing that I, I always want to make clear, folks, that it was it's kind of wild for me because I started doing this research, you know, back in 2012, well before COVID, and the book was in press at the time that COVID really broke, right? And so I had to go back and I had to do some more interviews and I had to really see, well, how have these plants, primarily Tyson and Columbus Junction and Iowa Premium Beef, those are my the, my two sites, my fieldwork sites, how have they responded? You know, and as we know, as you know, you know, be, being in Iowa, there was a whole lot going on with the Waterloo plant where we found out later that managers were actually taking bets on who was going to get sick and even die. Yes. Like some really, yes. really awful, awful things going on, right? And so I um, talked with some of my um, interlocutors at the plants whom I, I continue to stay in touch with, like what is going on, you know? And and um, I had a little follow-up piece published in American Catholic Studies, and I'm, I'm, work- I'm going to be working on a piece over this next semester too, like post meatpacking America book, like what's going on now. But what we found was that the plants were at the very best, incredibly slow to respond. And they responded, I would say, primarily because not because of the altruism from the companies, right? And again, it really calls into question the corporate lexicon, if you will, of faith, family and values. Like if you call your workers family, is that how you treat your family? That that's precisely what I would ask, right? Is this how you treat your family members? You don't have testing and, and you don't later on you don't have immunization campaigns, right? But it was primarily the workers taking a stand. And we also saw this at some plants in North Carolina where workers were saying, primarily in Columbus Junction, it was the Burmese and Latino workers saying, we're not, like, two-thirds of the workforce just didn't show up. They're like, we are not going to risk our families' lives. The, the families of our grandparents, right, because these are mixed-generational homes, right? We're not going to risk the lives of our grandparents, um, you know, and our, and our parents for a paycheck. And so it was only after, I know this from Columbus Junction, that folks just, workers said we're not going into work that is when we had you know the barriers installed that's when we had all the extra precautions taken the ppes and everything before now this is before the vaccine i do know um because i keep in touch with um some friends in the columbus junction plant that they are really they're really trying hard to vaccinate their workers but they're coming up against a lot of vaccine hesitancy. And so this is an sure. interesting thing that I actually haven't shared in any other podcast, but um, I was doing a little bit of work for the CDC and I, NIOSH this summer, just some consulting work. And my friends at Tyson, a couple of friends I keep in touch with, are like, wow, we'd love to partner with you at some point because we very much want to see our workers vaccinated. So this is the Columbus Junction plant. I'm not sure if this is being replicated at other Tyson plants, and I, I wouldn't necessarily say it is. But um, I do think that it's only, and this ties in with our conversation about unionization, it's only when workers feel empowered, right? And, you know, this stuff only happens from the grassroots. It's not going to come from above, right? CEOs and CFOs weren't saying, oh, we really need to provide this for our workers. Oh, we really need to do this. No, it was only when workers said, hell no, we're not going to work, right? And so uh, that's why I'm hopeful for um hopefully, you know, in my lifetime, you know, unionization among these plants here in the state. 
Christy, my question goes back to to religion and in particular uh, a comment you made earlier about, you know, the the sort of Calvinist work ethic, um, religious convictions, particularly of um, fundamentalist Protestants uh, groups and whatever. And and so I've also been doing some reading on, you know, the idea of on that protestant worth work ethic and yeah. the the sense of people having mm-hmm. receiving living the life that they deserve and the yeah. arrogance that yeah. goes into from an owner's perspective that I'm successful yeah. because I made myself successful and those folks working down on the floor are unsuccessful or struggling or at risk or whatever else is going on because somehow they deserve it. Can you talk a little bit about how that, that religious concept has filtered its way into this conversation? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that's an excellent question, Jay. And I love that you're, you're quite a religious study scholar here. I'm digging this. So, um, <laughs> yeah. and so what, how you had phrased you know, the Calvinist work ethic, I think, you know, sort of meets prosperity theology of a very particular kind of evangelical Christian stripe in the 90s. I think we very much see that in the packing plants. And I spend a good chapter talking about this at Tyson and IPB, you know, literally, um, you know, how religion is like, and this sort of corporate language of, of work hard, be successful. And you're right, every single one of the folks I spent time with who were on the upper management all talked about their their own upbringings. Almost all, they're all from the Midwest. Most of them grew up on farms or cattle ranching. Um, they, many of them didn't have um, a college degree. Um, high school degree was uh, was common among a lot of the the upper management. And working hard and being successful and going to church was definitely kind of the trinity. You know, like working hard, praying. And just kind of like sucking it up, you know, those are like having grit, you know, those are like the three um, things, you know, whatever we call this, like the Trinity <laughs> that, that were that were discussed a lot. It's interesting, though, like, I didn't detect so much. I mean, maybe this was, this wasn't something that they talked about with me, you know, but but something that I did notice, though, was that there was a respect, at least when the, the, the CEOs and upper management were white, mostly white, were talking about the Latino and African workers saying, in a lot of ways, they're they're like they're like me. They're working really hard, and they too can be successful. But but what wasn't recognized, right? Obviously, is you know, or maybe not obviously, but what I didn't hear discussed at all was white privilege and how even white working class folks have a long history of having a safety net or you know have have certain passes because they're white. And I honestly think a big reason why I've thought about this a lot, Jay, myself as an ethnographer, I think one of the reasons why I was given access into the plants was because I'm a white Midwestern woman, a cishet woman. And I think that 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 benefited me. You know, I've actually thought, like, gosh, would I have been given access if I were Latino or African and if I weren't from the Midwest and if I weren't from a Lutheran family? Because, you know, so I've thought about these things a lot. But I think you're right. I think there's definitely a slippery slope, if you will, to this mm, Calvinist work ethic prosperity theology, because because I, I do think that there's this there's this idea tagged onto that. Well, if you're not successful, then that means you're not working hard enough. And I know we know that that that, that all of these workers in the packing plant are working very very hard. And I do think that that idea is underlying 
the corporate idea about these of, of that you know that trickles down onto these refugee workers that well you know if they're still living in a trailer and they're so poor you know well there must be something wrong because after all i was successful right and so think and while none of that was explicitly voiced i think that was very much lurking under the surface of a lot of the conversations you know and you know very few of these line workers are economically prosperous like the white you know like the whites right who were in the upper management right and so i think that again getting back to the sticky wicket of whiteness that i that i mentioned earlier i think that we white folks have such a hard time mining our own white privilege even working class white folks right while there might be class alignments right going on at the plant there's still um you know be, being white you have a pass and and you, you know you're not judged as harshly and i don't think that 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 there's a willingness to acknowledge that not only by most whites but i think in these packing plants as well sure ed you get the honor of the last question <laughs> okay um one of the things um that ha- always bothered me as a meat producer um yeah. was the conditions in the packing plants um and one of the things that we're not hearing about um in mainstream media, uh, you know, this ostensible labor shortage uh, mm-hmm. in Iowa. Um, mm-hmm. And what's not being talked about are the not just the horrible working conditions, but the, the turnover. Because yeah. these are young yeah. people, young, healthy, young, strong people, as a rule, who right. simply cannot take it physically. Right. Um, and can you talk about that? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked this. I'm actually having coffee with uh, a friend who works in one of the plants next week, and it's too bad I didn't have, like, even more updates to give you. But, um, yes, you're right, the labor shortage. I mean, they're starting to have to pay even more. They're they're starting to up the salaries, right? And if you drive down to Columbus Junction, you'll see the billboards. If you drive toward any of these packing plants, you'll see billboards with, like, new rates, you know, know, hourly rates uh, posted. You're absolutely right. I mean, and, and we, what we have is a very dangerous work condition, right? And we also have line speeds, um, which are always speeding up. And under our last uh, president's reign, I, I won't name him, under our last POTUS, I just don't want to utter the name, but uh, he, he wanted to increase line speeds because, you know, because we needed meat and because it was COVID, so, you know, we needed more meat because it was COVID, right? And our, and our current governor supported increased line speeds as did the you know as did members of the legislature and safety protocols were not are, are not being put in place at the same time that line speeds you know right and so you have fewer workers you have workers being crammed together more closely you have line speeds going up that's a recipe for disaster right and so i don't have like super updated like from from the last six months or anything, but I do know that in the broadband protein industry, what it's called, whether we're talking about chicken, uh, turkey, pork, or beef, that line speeds are always sped up. And there's always a, like a baked in irony too, right? Like these workers are finally being called essential workers, right? And during COVID, right, these workers, right, their invisibility was their invisibility. They were made visible during COVID, right? But the problem was that even though they were being called essential workers, their working conditions were not, you know, there, there was no, ad, you know, 
broadband advocacy from the then president or his cabinet, right, towards actually improving the conditions and not speeding up the line speed. So they're being called essential workers now, and they're being recognized as important workers. But the important and necessary protocols to actually protect them haven't come into play yet, right? And so I would very much like to see that happen, and that's why I keep going back to unions. I I think that that's the only way we're going to see it happen, especially in our state, if we continue the way we're going with our current, you know, our current political scene. That yeah, my, a... my personal, my personal, like, one of the things I relate to along those lines is that uh, I grew up with an uncle and a cousin working down here in Davenport at Oscar oh, Meyer wow. when they oh, still slaughtered hogs. And my cousin wow. had the highest, had the highest paying job in the plant. He was a ham skinner, which wow. was also very dangerous. But the policy, the policy, and I don't know if this was company imposed or whether the union got this, but this was his primary job. But he was only allowed to do that for so many days at a time. And then they moved him to a different job and he had to stay away from that job before he could come back to it. And that was long before any of us had ever heard of carpal tunnel. But you don't have to know much about it to realize that that's why they did that. Exactly. So they knew. Did they ever tell him that this was why he was being moved and then brought back? Oh, I think everybody knew it. Everyone knew it was unspoken. Oh, wow. And and the workers, as a ham skinner, he understood this was in his best interest. Yes, yes. So let those particular ligaments heal do a different task, and then he was moved back to that job. So was there always was there this sort of cycle of rotating yeah. then? Okay. Yeah, they had probably okay. had, you know, two or three different crews or whatever. But, yes, um, yes. That's, you know, and that, that's all completely foreign to today's, what we know of meatpacking today. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because folks tend to be cycled out after they've been injured now. At, at both of the plants I visited, my understanding, my takeaway from, from the conversations I had was this is the job this person does. And then basically they're cycled out once they're injured. That's when they're moved over. But I don't know if there's, there's this sort of preventative, preventative move um, as, as you described. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. I, I did not hear that at either of the plants. It was like this is the job that they do, you know. And it's the only the stories that I heard was, oh, they're doing this job now because they were injured doing the other job. So I met a janitor at one of the plants who was so badly injured. Um, the one job he could do was mop floors, and it was really difficult seeing him. He uh, had a difficult time walking, and his attitude was actually <laughs> was one of gratitude. He was glad that they didn't fire him. He was glad that he still had a job. You know, this is a guy probably in his 60s, you know, who was mopping floors, you know. So, yeah, that's reality. Yeah, and right. And that gets us back to what we were talking about before in terms of, you know, you take advantage of people who are immigrants and refugees who are desperate. You know, anything's better than where I was. And so I keep my mouth shut and I soldier on in in a way that that you might not be able to get someone from the from the white community to do to do the same thing. That's right. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And well, then, you know, I was at a city council meeting in Iowa City a couple weeks ago, and it was to basically get um, Johnson County to release um, COVID uh, relief funds to workers who had been excluded 
from the COVID relief funds. And most of these workers were actually meatpacking plant workers. Um, there were a lot of roofers there. And so these are folks who whose bodies have been harmed, right, and who are so living such precarious existences. And they've been cut out at, on so many levels, you know. And so, I mean, I use the phrase in the book that, these workers are seen as fungible commodities. They're treated as fungible commodities, much like the animals that are fed, fattened, and slaughtered. You know, I think there's a continuum, right? Right. Yep. Well, we'd like to thank our guest for this 443rd show, Dr. Christine Navin Warren, Professor in VO, and Elizabeth Call Figgy, Chair of Catholic Studies in the Departments of Religious Studies and Gender and Women's and Sexuality Studies at the University of Iowa, who's been talking to us about Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM, and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at Station KALA, St. Ambrose University.